want us to, uh, to continue. Uh, the last couple of times I've, I've preached in the evenings, I've, I've been reading from Ephesians, and uh, I want to continue in that. And I want us to, to look uh, at verses 15 to 19 in chapter 1 of Ephesians. It's actually 15 through to 23, uh, but we're going to particularly look at 15 to 19. You've got your Bibles, I encourage you to take a look. It's on the screen as well. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians, and God says to us as well. Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from death and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Father, I pray that as we, uh, as we come to look at these, these words from your, uh, from your word, God, please, would you open our eyes to them? Would you open our eyes to what you're saying to us tonight? God, we recognise that you're God. We recognise that you love us and that's been shown ultimately in Jesus. And we, so many of us have said yes to you and experienced the delight and the joy of entering into that life with you and being called to be co-labourers and seeing your kingdom coming. But Lord, we know there's more and we strive for it and we cry out, God, would you... Open the hearts of every single one of us here. For myself, as I speak, I completely acknowledge that I'm messed up and weak. I completely acknowledge that the stuff that's written in your word here is way beyond that which I understand. But I pray, God, by your grace and by your spirit, you'd come and bring it to life and teach us things that we'd never be able to grasp in our own understanding. Because we want to know more of you and we want to be like you. So, yeah, come and be with us, Jesus. Change us to be more like you. Amen. 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 Um, Before we kind of look at these verses, uh, I just want to do a quick recap on uh, the stuff that we've looked at in Ephesians so far, because it kind of gives the backdrop in which to kind of understand the context of of these verses. Um, So you remember, if if you were here last time I was preaching, uh, we kind of looked at Ephesians as a whole and, and... Fast forwarded a little bit to chapter 4 and found verses 12 and 13. I kind of highlighted them and said, I think these are some of the key verses of Ephesians in terms of Paul's heart and reason for writing to the Ephesians, like this purpose of of the book and what he's trying to say. And and as we kind of read through, we begin to kind of realise that it's all about God's people 
kind of us, people who responded to him, recognizing the limitless gifts that God ceaselessly gives us in order for this, in verses 12 and 13, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And I want to kind of suggest that the book of Ephesians is, is all about Paul's heart saying he wants us, he wants his readers, he wants us to, to mature in Christ. He wants us to grow in him and he wants us to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It's a pretty loaded statement, isn't it? The whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He wants us to mature into having all of that. And we looked at uh, how, how Paul breaks down the book kind of into two, his letter into two sections. The first three chapters, uh, one to three, and the second three chapters, four to six. And, and the first three chapters being all about uh, who we are in Christ, about what God has done, his initiating plan in revealing himself to us, in calling us. And the second half, chapters four and six, being all about uh, our response to that, the practical kind of outworking of, of responding to the call of Jesus upon our lives. And, uh, and, and in chapter four, at the beginning, kind of right bang smack in the middle between these two halves, we see this one verse, if you remember from before, verse one of chapter four, kind of linking these two halves together. And Paul says this, he encourages us, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of of the calling you've received. And if you remember, we kind of uh, looked at this, this phrase, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And we talked about that word worthy, kind of the Greek being axios is the Greek word. And, and, and how Eugene Peterson, uh, the guy who writes the message, he, he, in one of his books, kind of opens this up and gives us this really good pictorial metaphor of understanding what, what this word axios really means. That he says it's kind of like a, uh, an old-fashioned... Uh, uh, scales, you know, like the balance scales, where you have two pans uh, on a cross beam, and, and you put sort of a known weight of, say, a lead weight of half a pound in one pan, and then uh, you put whatever else it is that you want to weigh out, uh, the flour or, or rice or whatever it is, and, and you keep pouring until the two pans balance out. And when they balance out, they, they might be different substances, but they're worthy of each other, they match up. There's something that kind of fits together about them. And this is the picture that Paul kind of gives us here. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Here is who God is, who he calls us to be because of his achievements. And then the second half, all about living and practically walking that out. Paul says, here's the call, match it. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And it's then... When the outworking, the response to God's call in our lives and who he is, when they match, that's when we're in a position to grow and to mature and to become more like Jesus. And uh, so we skip through the first couple of verses, all about, even in the first two verses, we see how Paul shows us that for him, everything is defined in terms of Christ. Everything. He defines himself in terms of Christ. He defines the Ephesians in terms of Christ. He even brings a greeting that is only possible because of Christ. And then from that uh, initial opening, uh, we move into verses 3 to 14. 
And if you kind of miss the subtleties of, of the first couple of verses, you can't miss the point that Paul's trying to make in this next section. Paul could not be more explicit in these verses 3 to 14 that it is all about Jesus, that everything is about him. And Paul was so clearly massively, massively excited about this that he couldn't even stop himself as he was writing this prayer out to put in a full stop. And we ended up with this longest sentence that we find in the Bible, which runs 12 verses long. And it talks all about who God is and who we are in him because of him and because of his achievement. And as people who are already in Christ, who have said yes to him, we cannot hear this list of these 12 verses and fail to get similarly excited about it all, like Paul did. And very quickly, just to give the context, I want to highlight the content of these, these, these 12 verses. Note, like this, Paul goes through and he states what we have in Christ. God's initiated stuff and we've received from him and he lists all these things that we have from him. But notice how it's all past tense that we have these things already. So verse 3, he says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, we have been chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. Verse 5, we have been destined for adoption to sonship. Verse 7, we have been redeemed through the blood. In other words, we've had our sins, our selfishness, all of that washed away. It's not a future event, it's happened. Verse 8, we have been lavished and drenched to the point that we're dripping with God's grace, with his free gifts. Verse 9, we have had the mystery of his will made known to us. Verse 11, we have been made heirs. We are heirs, which means that we have an inheritance. And verses 13 to 14, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance. So if we've said yes to Jesus, if you've said yes to him, and you've responded to the good news of Jesus, then all that stuff is yours already. Full stop. No arguing. No matter how you feel, that is truth. You have it. That is your position if you have said yes to Jesus. And it's got nothing to do with what we've done. It's got nothing to do with anything that we've earned. It is all purely because of Jesus. But that is who we are and what we have. It all begins in God, not in us. God's the blesser. God's the chooser of us. God's the destiny maker. God's the redeemer. God is the lavish gift giver. God is the revealer of himself. It all begins in him. Nothing in us. Okay, it requires a response, but it all begins in him. And it's all ours through what Jesus has done. Notice in every single one of those things about what we have, it's all in Christ Jesus every single time. Jesus is the one who reveals and makes accessible that initiating activity of God. And we are who we are and we have what we have solely on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done and accomplished. And when we hear all of that stuff... There's no wonder that Paul gets so flipping excited and can't stop. Because if we really grab hold of it, it can do nothing but excite us. And therefore, there's no wonder that Paul shouts out again and again in those verses to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all to the praise of God. 
All to the praise. In verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, all say to the praise of his glory. So we get to the end of that bit and we finally have a full stop. And just as you think Paul's come to the end, he grabs a quick, quick breath and then he legs it again in verses 19 through to 23. And you kind of think, how can there be more? How can there be more? And just as we don't think there can be, Paul moves from this kind of prayer of praise of who we are and what we have in Jesus and moves into this section of where he kind of prays and he intercedes for his, for his readers that they might have more. And I want to just draw out a couple of points uh, from this, this section, verses 15 to 19 particularly, uh, of, of growing in Christ, of, of maturing in him. So we see in verse 15 and 16, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. For this reason. For what reason? (laughs) For the reason that Paul's just been screaming about for 12 verses. For the reason that he personally knows God and he knows all that stuff which has been said that is his. He's, he's, he's understood it. He's grabbed hold of it. His life has been transformed. You remember the old Paul, Saul, the guy who was the religious persecutor, the guy who would go out and, 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 and try and get Christians killed. And God met with him and set him free. And he knows all that stuff from verse 3 to 14. He knows it for himself. He knows it's his. He knows the freedom that it brings. And so therefore, he knows that when anyone else responds to Jesus and says yes to him, he knows the freedom that that brings. He knows the place of identity in Christ that they now have and what that means for them. And he can do nothing, having heard of their acceptance of Jesus, he can do nothing but constantly rejoice Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The amazing thing is, uh, as as we look at Ephesians, it's it's unlikely uh, that Paul really personally knew the people who he was writing to. He'd been in Ephesus uh, years before, and he'd spent a long time there, and he'd established a church there, a group of people who were following Jesus. But that had been a long time ago, and we don't really have all the historical records, so we don't really know exactly what's going on. But unlike many of other Paul's letters, there's nothing in Ephesians which kind of personally addresses individuals. Like in many of his letters, he'll name someone personally and say, give my greetings to them. But there's nothing of that in Ephesus, which kind of suggests that he doesn't personally know the people there. But it says, regardless of the fact that he didn't personally know them, ever since I heard about your faith, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. As we've seen kind of already, we jump forward to chapter 4. Paul's hope for the Ephesians is that they mature in Christ. That they grow in Christ. And for us, it's impossible, absolutely impossible, to be mature in Christ. To know God, to know who we are because of him, to know his power in us. And to respond to all of that faithfully. It's impossible to be mature in Christ and to not get excited about other people coming to know Jesus and having their lives transformed because of their new identity. See, the very heart of the gospel is selfless love. 
It's impossible to truly grab hold of all that God's given us through his sacrifice and for us to remain self-centred and self-focused. And this is a sign for us. It's kind of a marker of our maturity. Are we growing in Christ? Are we maturing in him? And this is the marker. Do we get genuinely excited when we see other people coming to faith? Do we get genuinely excited when we see other people saying yes to Jesus and discovering their true identity in him? We had, uh, we had five or six baptisms last Sunday, and there's something of an excitement, isn't there? When you see their lives and you hear their stories at Bidford, I think they had five or six again this morning. And just to hear their stories of God changing lives, you can't help but get excited. And uh, especially when it's kind of part of our own body, when they're part of our family now, and they're kind of coming in. And there's a real sense of, yes, come on, we know what that means for them, because we've tasted something of ourselves. And that's awesome and that's right. But I wonder, is that extended? Is that excitement for seeing God changing people's lives extended when it's beyond our own input, when it's beyond our ministry, when it's beyond the realms of our own local church? Do we still get so excited when we hear of one sole person on the other side of the world coming to faith? We don't know them. We don't have a clue about them. Do we care? Do we get excited? Because it's impossible to be maturing in Christ, to have the fullness of him in us and not get excited. I'm not saying this is an issue for us. This is just an example, although it could be an issue. I wonder if we, if, if St. James's Church down the road uh, during this next week happened to see 100 people from Camden come to faith and join their congregation, I know the answer, we would get flipping excited. But the truth is, there is something inside us, isn't there, that niggles away. And we kind of think, oh, pants. Why do they have to go there and not here? Like, do we genuinely rejoice? And when we see a group of people, sometimes we go to Soul Survival or we go to the conferences and we see a whole bulk of people responding. We think, yes, this is great. Do we kind of just see them as a bulk of kind of people? And it's like, hey, I was part of something where loads of people came to faith. It helps my faith grow because I've seen it work, which is true. But... Do we genuinely get excited that every single individual one of those people has found their true identity in Jesus? It's really interesting. We had uh, Nick Cuthbert, a little plug, Cornerstone Summer Conference coming up in a few weeks' time. And uh, Nick Cuthbert, absolutely fantastic guy, uh, used to uh, be the the main pastor leader at uh, Riverside Church in Birmingham. And uh, encourage you to come along and hear him. Anyway, the leaders uh, at Cornerstone, we, we, we met up with him uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, kind of almost in, in a passing comment from, from him to us, uh, he kind of made this statement which really stuck with me. And he said this, if we don't see mission, kind of in other words, seeing the lost discovering Jesus and turning to him, if we don't see mission as a priority, can we really call ourselves Christians? And that really hit me as a stark question, which actually is valid and has truth. If we don't see mission as a priority, can we truly call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus? 
Because it's all part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus, of being in on all that God is. If we're really in on all that God is, we want everyone else in on it too. If we really get who God is and what he's done for us, the heart of God is that everyone's involved. It's a marker to see whether we're growing. We're still human, but mark yourself off every now and then. Have a little assessment of your life every couple of months. Am I more excited now than I was before? And if I'm not, I'm obviously not in that place. My, my response to God's calling obviously isn't matched up. So when we get excited when people come to faith. Secondly, uh, verse 17, he gives thanks for them. He's not stopping giving thanks, remembering them in his prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he spends a whole bunch of verses excited about actually what that power is, the resurrection power. So we see Paul doesn't just thank God for the Ephesians and their faith. He now starts to pray for them. He starts to intercede for them. He cries out for them. And he's asking for three main things here. Verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. First thing he asks for is that they would have a greater knowledge of God. Second thing, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. Second thing, he's asking for a greater knowledge, that they would have a greater knowledge of who they are in Jesus and of their identity and of the inheritance that they have. And thirdly, verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul's asking God that the Ephesians, that his readers, that us as we read this, would have a greater knowledge and a greater operation of that resurrection power for us. How is it, how is it that Paul can state so emphatically in verses 3 to 14, stating all that we are and all that we have? He states really clearly, doesn't he? We already have everything in Christ. And yet here we find him praying that we'd have more. The thing is, is that you probably kind of get this, but our position can sometimes be very different from our realised knowledge of that position, can't it? Uh, let me kind of give you a few examples. So, so Anna and myself obviously uh, just came back from honeymoon two or three weeks ago. And uh, whilst we were there, we stayed at a really, really nice hotel, a place called Sugar Beach. And when we got there, uh, obviously we were quite tired, but we were also quite excited to see the place. Anna was like a small child running around all over the place, screaming and taking photos of everything. And, uh, uh, but when we first arrived there, even in this state of kind of tiredness and excitement, the, the, the lady sat us down and she started to talk through all the privileges of being a resident at the hotel. And she gave us a whole pack of stuff, which we had a little bit of a look through. And uh, we realised that being a resident at this hotel kind of positioned us for all kinds of complimentary things, not just within the hotel, which was really rather exciting. 
And we were told about a lot of them, and we read about a lot of them. But as we kind of said, we were a bit tired and a bit excited. So we'd heard it, but hadn't necessarily grabbed hold of it. And uh, unfortunately, one day, we, well, it wasn't unfortunate at all. It was an exceedingly good day. But we, uh, we decided we were going to visit a, uh, an uninhabited island, a really, really beautiful place. And we'd kind of read up in the tour guide that we got uh, of how much it was going to cost. And we got down to, to the harbour and we asked this guy, how much is it going to cost? And he wanted to completely rip us off. So we kind of laughed. Anna got really cross at me and nudged me in the ribs and said, oh, don't accept that price. Um, and uh, so I duly obliged and said, we're not having that price. <laughs> and uh, managed to wangle it down a little bit. Um, however, it was still considerably more than we had anticipated and hoped for. Anyway, we spent the day, had a really fantastic day when we got there, and both said to each other on the way back on the boat crossing over, kind of in these crystal clear waters and the beautiful sun shining down on these golden beaches. Uh, sorry, just making a bit jealous. And, uh, <laughs> and Anne and I looked at each other and we said, you know what, it might have been more than we anticipated, but that was worth it, wasn't it? That was really worth it. And we, we were quite chuffed with ourselves. Anyway, got back to the hotel. What's the first thing I do when I get back to the hotel? I open up the manual that we have in our room of welcome to the hotel. We'd been there for a week and a half. Sugar Beach residents have complimentary access to this uninhabited island on another hotel's ferry service. So, oh. You know what? I'd read that already, and I knew it, but I hadn't really realised it. Silly example, but actually our position is often very not realised by us. Another really silly example. I'm glad Ali's here, because this would be quite funny. Um, <laughs> as, as Acres boys, uh, all, all three of us, as any, any children do, we at time to time got given chocolates and sweets. Shock horror. And, uh, and I used to love my chocolates and sweets. Um, the thing is, when Ali got given chocolates and sweets, Ali never ate them. And uh, it used to wind me up an absolute treat to see that he had all these sweets and he just hoarded them and left them in this cupboard, literally for years, years and years, and it just got bigger and bigger. And if I went anywhere near it, of course I got a punch or a little, you know, or head down the toilet, no, not quite that bad. But it used to wind me up. Where's it, sorry? Looks like it. Well. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> Whereas I would be given my sweets and my chocolates, oh, I would eat them. I'd try them in every possible way. You'd smell them, you'd lick them, like the Cadbury's cream eggs. You'd try them in each way, you'd scoop out the middles, you kind of eat the chocolate first and then the goo, you try the other bits and all of a sudden. I knew my chocolates and uh, I'd share them as well. I'd enjoy sharing them and the whole experience was great. I knew my sweets and my chocolates. Now, you see, Ali and I used to both have sweets and chocolates. The problem was is that Ali's were an unrealised uh, possession of his. <laughs> I definitely knew they were there. And I definitely knew my sweets and my chocolates intimately. The thing is, what Ali hadn't realised is it was actually backfiring on him by hoarding them all. Because after a while, our parents and various other people who gave us sweets began to realise that he never had them. And he just put them in this little cupboard. So as time went on, people stopped buying him sweets and chocolates. Whereas uh, people knew very much that I was eating mine, so I kept receiving more. His collection was somewhat static and turned a bit skank and white in a cupboard, although it was eventually thrown away once Kate came into his life. Um, <laughs> somewhat by force. Whereas mine sat very intimately around my waist, and we knew each other very well, and I kept receiving more. Jesus tells a much, much better story 
uh, of, of, of this. Remember the story in Luke 15 of, the, of the, what we sometimes call the prodigal son, uh, or the lost son. And so often we focus on the, the younger brother. He kind of grabs, he, he shames his father, spits in his face, says, I just wish you were dead, grabs his stuff and legs it, and uh, grabs his inheritance, and runs off, squanders it all. And when he's run out, he decides, hmm, pants, I've got nothing left. So he thinks, I'll go back to my dad and I'll work for him and I'll scrounge off him. And he gets back to his dad, and before he even has a chance to grovel, his dad comes and he accepts him back, not just a little bit, but he accepts him back as a son in friendship with extravagance and he throws this kick-ass party. The older brother, which actually is the, the guy who kind of Jesus is really focusing on in the story, the older brother, he refuses to go into this party and you remember it, don't you? He refuses to go in and, uh, and the father comes out and says, why? Why won't you come in? And the son gets really, really narky with him. And he says, look, Dad, I've slaved for all these years for you, and you've never even given me a flipping goat to party with my friends. And this son of yours, who's just completely squandered everything, he comes back, you accept him back as a friend, and you, you throw the biggest party I've ever seen anyone throw. What is that all about? And his dad says to him, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. See, the older son in that story, he'd, he'd missed the point. Because in the process of kind of working away really hard to try and earn his way, he'd kind of missed the fact that actually he was already positioned to have whatever his dad had. What he hadn't realised is that, that it was through relationship with his dad that he had everything but he seemed to somewhat forsake that relationship in an attempt to earn all the stuff. And it doesn't work like that. It just doesn't work like that. The relationship is the goal. And it's through that relationship with God that the other stuff becomes a reality. It's all about relationship. And that relationship, as we've kind of read already, it's initiated by God and it's made possible by God's provision and work. What's the relevance of all of that? Why am I kind of coming up with all that? Well, we can have heard everything that Paul says, can't we, in verses 3 to 14, of who we are and what is ours in Christ. And we can kind of know it in theory. And to some extent, we've seen it change our lives as we've placed our faith in Jesus and in what we've heard of him. And, and in a very real sense, it very much is ours. But the problem is, as long as it kind of remains predominantly theory for us, no matter how well-versed we are in that theory, we're missing out on the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which in the end can only come through relationship with him. We, at the beginning, we read Psalm 34, and we, we saw how God loves to be in, involved in the everyday stuff of our lives. David, the guy who wrote the psalm, he knew that. He knew it intimately. God says, t- he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just an intellectual knowledge. It's tasteable. You know, I know that's not a word. It's, uh, it's visible. Our senses can experience the truth. It's not just about hearing about his goodness, although that is crucial but moving beyond that to taste it and to see it 
See, life with God was always meant to be practical and hands-on. It's exciting. Remember uh, the old geezer Job in the Old Testament? And he kind of knew this stuff as well. He, he, said, uh, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. There's a difference, isn't there, between knowing in our minds and actually living out in relationship with God, knowing that truth through relationship. So how, how do we get this kind of tangible knowledge of Jesus? How do we uh, develop this relationship? Because scripture tells us of Jesus, doesn't it? We can read our Bibles, we can pick it up, we can read the Gospels, and we see something of Jesus. We hear about him, and we can kind of start to kind of paint pictures of who he is. And we can kind of, uh, you know, deduce principles. But how is it that that knowledge of him can actually become personal and tangible? Let's have a little look at, at what Paul prays for on behalf of the Ephesians. I think this kind of opens it up a little bit. He says, I ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is verse 17, the, Lord of our, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might fully know him. First thing that's kind of important to note here, I think, Paul prays for this knowledge. How can we begin to know it? Paul prays for it. He recognises that it can't be achieved in anyone's own strength. It begins in God, and so we cry out to God and ask him. But also important is to kind of see how Paul addresses God as he prays for it. How does he, what, what, how does he title God? He says this, he says, first of all, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he's praying to, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Why does he not just say God? And it's because ultimately things can only be known for what they are, for what they really are, through Jesus. God is revealed through Jesus. Jesus said it himself, John 14, verse 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews, he knew that. Verse 3 of chapter 1. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If we want to know God... We look at Jesus. Second title he has for God. He says, uh, the glorious father, or more literally, that should actually be the father of glory. Why why is it important that he calls him uh, the father of glory? Now, that word glory, in Greek, it's this word doxa, um, and it kind of parallels, it translates the the Old Testament uh, Hebrew uh, word, which is kavod, which are kind of like two very similar words. Um, And... And the clearest picture that we get of what Kavod, this kind of glory, really is, is when we look uh, in, in, in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. You remember the story uh, of the Israelites. And uh, the, Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law from God. And the Israelites get really bored because he's up there for 40 days. And they're like, oh, come on, for goodness sake. And in that time, they decide to just forget the fact that God's miraculously helped them out of Egypt. And they decide to build an idol and start worshipping it. They build a golden calf. And Moses comes down. He's in a bit of a tetch. God's in a tetch with Moses and with, uh, with the people. Moses is just like, oh, my goodness, I can't win. Um, but God says, right, that's it. Scrap it. I'm not having anything to do with the Israelites. I've had enough. And Moses says, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. What have we just been doing for the last however many years? I didn't risk my life for this. You said you were going with us. Come on. And amazingly, God hears that plea. 
And God says, okay, I will go with you. I will go with you. And Moses says, hmm, I want to a good thing here. Let's ask for some more. And so he pushes on and says, God, let me see your glory. That word glory, kavod. And Moses, God responds and says, okay. And Moses, uniquely of all people, sees the physical form of God passing. Isn't that incredible? But that's kind of that, 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 that's kind of the sense of glory. Let me see your glory. That kind of making known, God making known of himself. God revealing himself. And why is that important? Why is that important? Because God's pray, Paul is praying to the Father of glory, the Father who shows his glory. In other words, he's praying to the God who he knows has a habit of revealing himself. He knows he's not praying in vain. So, what do we see first? First, Paul prays. It's important to note how he addresses God. Secondly, Paul prays that this self-revealing God might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, it's through the spirit that this knowledge of Jesus can become personal and that we have relationship with the Father. Jesus himself said, John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And we've seen already, uh, Paul said in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, he's already given us the spirit, hasn't he? He's already given us the spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. The spirit already lives in us if we've said yes to Jesus. And yet Paul recognises that there's a need for a constant increase in order to fully know God. Later on in Ephesians, in verse 18 of chapter 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Kind of that word, keep on being filled with the Spirit. He says that, having already stated that they have the Spirit. Kind of There's got to be more, hasn't there? Paul knows, like, we, we have the Spirit in us, but there's more. So this full knowledge of God is in Jesus Christ and it's through his spirit and it's available to every single one of us. It's not exclusive to any sort of elite breed of super saints. There's more. But, but that more comes at a price. And this is the bit that I really believe God wants us to hear. We're called, we've already heard this, haven't we? We're called to live lives worthy of the calling you have received. That's what Paul states. That's what God is saying. Live lives worthy of the calling we have received. The thing is with that is that the more we know of God, the greater the responsiveness that's required on our part. Live lives worthy of the calling you've received. The more God shows of himself and his calling to us, the more it requires us to respond in order to have those pans levelled out and to be in a place where we can mature and grow in Christ. And this isn't something which is new. Uh, this isn't something that's only found in Ephesians. This is a gospel principle. This is something which Jesus spoke of. The fact that the more we see, the more we have, the more we know of God, the more we know of who we are in him and of his power for us, the more that's going to be required and expected of us in terms of our response to all of that. 
Luke chapter 12. Uh, Jesus is telling his disciples a parable. You remember the parable of the watchful servant? Of being ready and watching for when Jesus comes, when the master comes back. And this is how he concludes his discussions with his disciples in verses 47 and 48. And these are some really stark verses. He says this, Luke 12, 47 and 48. The servant who knows the master's will, in other words, those who have heard something of God's call and know who we are in him, those who know the master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I love the way the message, Eugene Peterson, kind of puts it on that last little bit. He says, great gifts mean great responsibilities. Greater gifts, greater responsibilities. The more we know of God, the more we know of who we are in him, the more we have a realised knowledge of all that is ours in him, the more it requires a response on our part to respond to that, to start living in radical obedience to that, to start stepping out, not just hearing, but doing something with it. And those verses in Luke, they're kind of quite scary, aren't they? But actually, there's no reason to be scared. This is, surely this is an absolute no-brainer. Why would we not want more? If we don't know about God, there might be the slight chance that we'll get less blows, is what Jesus says. If we don't know the Master's will, and we don't do it, we can't be held accountable for it. The problem is, guaranteed, I think everyone in, us in here has probably heard something of Jesus. And so we have a responsibility to do something with that. It's not that our obedience earns us God's grace. Everything's already been done for us. But actually God longs to have the pleasure of us in intimate relationship with him and for us to have the pleasure of intimate knowledge of who he is. Why would we not want more? Yeah, sure, it's going to cost us our lives. But that's kind of just it, isn't it? It's our lives. As long as we keep defining things in our terms, it will be a real cost. But actually, when we know God and we grab hold of all that we are in him, we start defining things in terms of him anyway. And so it's no longer anything to be lost. Like, what, what, what price could we ever pay that would be worthy of receiving the fullness of Christ? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why would we not want that? At whatever cost. And this is, like, this is all scriptural, but I really believe there's something in this that God is wanting to say to us tonight about this. And I really think he wants to challenge us on this thing of radical obedience in response to the more. That when we actually truly respond to that which we know, it might lead to us losing something of our social status or our standing in the community. It might lead to us 
losing finance. It might lead to us losing so-called friendships. It might have a real price to it. But actually, it's no price at all when we see what we get as a result. And the price just fades into insignificance. That we get to be intimate friends with the living God. Do you, like Paul, want to start seeing yourself define more and more of life in terms of Christ? Do you want to increase excitement at seeing others accepting Christ? Do you want to see that maturity in you? Do you want to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? Do you want to be friends with God? Do you want to know more of him? And to not just hear this stuff which Paul writes about, but to begin to walk in it and to live in it and know it in our experience, to know God, to know who we are in him, to know the resurrection power at work in and through us in a way that we've not even imagined as possible as of yet. Because it's available to every one of us as we look at Jesus, as we get hungry and desperate for more of him and pray for God to fill us with more of his spirit who brings the revelation. And as we humble and lower ourselves and prepare to respond whatever he reveals of himself, no matter what the cost, recognising that the cost on our part just fades into insignificance in comparison to the price Jesus paid for us on the cross and the increased intimacy that we're going to have with Father God. I'm going to invite Jess and the the band to come back. I'm going to sing a song or two. But as we do, I think we kind of need to really respond to this. Like, as Cornerstone, I know we've gone through this stuff of more before. There's nothing new in that sense, although it's always great to hear things again. But I really feel there's a challenge that we need to step out, that in our asking of more, we recognise that even though Jesus has done it all, it still requires something of us in terms of response and radical obedience. True friends of God aren't people who have all the answers. They aren't people who religiously do all the right things. They aren't the cleverest of people. True friends of God are people who have laid down their lives in radical obedience in response to that which God's revealed of himself to them. And are we wanting more of that? God's heart is that we come and ask for more because he takes great delight and pleasure in having that intimacy and having that, uh, just us knowing so much more. But there's also a price. Jess is going to sing, we're going to sing a song, but I just want to encourage you. If you know you need to respond to that with the seriousness of saying, actually, this, this, requires, this requires a response on my part. I just want to encourage you as we're singing, uh, just to come kind of to the front or over to the side and to find some space, kind of kneel if you're able But I think there's something important actually about getting up and doing something about this. It's a response. 
and response costs at times in radical obedience. And it's not because I don't really care whether anyone comes forward or not in that sense. But I just think there's something important about physically making that sign to God and start crying out in desperate need for him. 